efficient with our time. Let's pray together. Father God, I love you and thank you, Father God. I thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach this single verse of Scripture, Father. I pray, Lord, that I'm preaching it rightly, Lord, that I'm... Uh, that the understanding, Father God, that the truth, God, that you're conveying through it, Father God, has become my understanding. That I, I now understand what I'm supposed to understand, Father God, and not vice versa. That I'm not just forcing my own interpretation upon this, Father. But what you mean by this verse, Father God, is all over what I've got to say today. That both in, 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 the, in just the sense of this one verse, Father God, and in the broadest implications of the scriptures, Father. This is a verse that makes me afraid, Father. It's a verse, Father God, which I'm afraid not just for the church, but for its mission, Father God, because we've got to be a church on mission all the time or we're not a church at all. Lord. We've got to be a church in love and obsessed with the gospel, and obsessed with evangelizing the truth, Father God, and, and, and missionalizing the truth, God, around the globe. We've got to be that, Father. We're not the church at all. But at the same time, Father God, I'm fearful for those that we care so much about, that we are, God, that we are ministering the gospel too, Father, that at any moment we've seen it, Father, get so close to the gospel, so close, Father God, to that, that epic transformation that makes someone stop being a child of darkness and become a child of light. We've seen it time and time again, Father, but we've also seen them just snatched away. It's seeming at the last moment, Father, when they are right where they can start to really be who you desire them to be, Father. They are led astray into some madness, Father. And so, Father God, I ask you now, Father God, I praise you now, Lord, to bless us, to, to understand um, the broadest implications of this, of this verse today. And to take this truth, Father God, home, to rest upon our hearts, Father, so that we will be transformed by it. I love you, Father God. I thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach your word, Father. And I pray, God, that I'm going to do it today, Lord, um, under your command, Father God, and in your authority. I love you, Father. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Peter writes this. He says, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Those are barely escaping from those who live in error. Now, I want to, uh, it's, it's, it's a difficult verse to understand um, in the original tongue, and it's a difficult verse to understand when, when translated. It's just a difficult verse, but that's okay. We want the hard things in the Bible to stay hard. We, the one, the, if there's one mistake translators can make is they try to take hard things and make them somehow easy. This is a difficult concept. Let's talk about it. Now look, first first, uh, the believer that's most connected with spiritual warfare. And this is a spiritual warfare passage. It's a spiritual warfare chapter. It is quite literally a spiritual warfare book, Second Peter. It is a warning and a command to us. That is the church. We have to understand that we have to be constantly honed in the gospel. That we can't just um, mail in our faith. We have to be committed like an army's committed. That if we're not committed like an army, that we'll be overcome by an enemy that is, that is wily and shrewd and cunning and crafty. And an enemy that's powerful in deception. We'll fail because we lost our nerve or we lost our focus. Now, that's as much on me as anybody in this room. I've been convicted by this passage all week long because of that. Because I realized that the gospel and the church can't afford for any of us to be distracted. And we live in a world of distractions. We live in a world where everything can feel like a, like a hotly burning forest fire, can it? And you've got to tend to it right then. 
I'm as much like that. Now, look, David Paulinson, the late David Paulinson, wrote a lot about counseling and spiritual warfare. Now, he wrote extensively about the ongoing attack of demonic forces against the oppressed and struggling within Christianity. And I think that's something that we have to always kind of understand the nuance of. Let me explain. We're going to have believers in our midst that are strong, mature, continually growing believers. We are. And, and prayerfully, we all wind up there. But it doesn't happen immediately, does it? You don't jump from lost one day to mature the next. That's one of the lies of the false church, to be honest with you. That's one of the, one of the deepest lies. That's how the false church lures people in. We'll talk about that. But that you're going to grow over time and you're going to find out that, that as you focus your heart and obsess over the Word, you're just going to grow through it. We're going to have some, we're going to have some believers like that. We're going to have some people that are just immature. They're recent converts or they haven't grown. They've been distracted, been separated sometimes from, from an availability of God's Word. Man, I remember being, um, in, uh, being in, in the military. There just weren't a lot of people preaching the Word in a lot of places that, places that God sent me. It's hard to find the Word. And it wasn't like today where you can go on the Internet and get all you want if you just want to hear the Word preached. It wasn't the same way back then. There wasn't, that didn't exist. So there are going to be some people who are immature, which means they're kind of waiting to be victimized. I'd say this from, from experience, from more, now well, a little bit more than two decades of experience in church leadership. Immature believers can act like lost people in your church. They can think like lost people, and I know we're in some ways a democratic organization. They sure enough can vote like lost people. They can be manipulated by those who are sent from the outside to corrupt the church intentionally. And we're going to have some people uh, in our church that are not quite believers yet and that we dearly love them and we're constantly ministering the gospel to them and we want to see them become believers and grow in the faith. That's what we want. We want more than anything else to see their bondage to sin ended. That's why we do what we do. That's why we preach and teach all the time, every opportunity. That's why we'll interrupt things that otherwise can feel like just fun so that we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ through it. Do you know why? Because it's the most precious thing and the most important thing that we do. But now those immature, those, those, believe, those people who are not yet believers, they can be led astray, can't they? They can be snatched up in an instant. They are prey for predators is what they are. And we're going to have some people along the way that are, that are lost and are marked for condemnation too whose only duty is to intentionally corrupt the church. To ruin it, if they possibly can. And in my decades of service, I've seen that happen. I've seen people come in that I have no confidence will ever repent of their, repent of their sins and believe the gospel. Because their mission is to terrorize God's church. So we, we understand that even within the four square walls of the church, there can be a great deal of opposition and there can be a great deal of, of opportunity for Satan, much less when we engage the lost world. This is all demonic attack. And we must embrace the notion that we don't do anything that Satan does not attack. We don't get together, guys, and eat crawfish. Something, to be honest with you, as silly as that that Satan's not going to attack it. Because the last thing he wants is peace and harmony and brotherhood and fellowship within the body of believers. He wants strife. 
He wants anger and frustration. He wants bitterness. That's what he desires. Paulson wrote this. He said, um, Scripture treats spiritual warfare as a normal, everyday part of the Christian life. And so we should as well. We talk about spiritual warfare almost like it's a once in a while thing. And it's this great, like, like the movie The Exorcist, you know what I'm talking about? This great big show. And what Paul said, this is every day for us. We battle Satan every day of our lives, not once in a while. The fact that we think we battle him once in a while means we're, either, we're not even fighting the rest of the time. Because we're not even acknowledging that there's a war. It's not about spooky special effects. It's about how we think, feel, live, desire, and act in the presence of our enemies. Understanding that as believers, we are always in the presence of the enemy. Always. It's always there to attack us. Look, as a church today, we study because we understand how vulnerable the weakest among us are to the aggressive attacks of the evil one. And to the manipulation of false churches with their false doctrine. So there's a two-pronged attack. One is within us. Understand that. One is going to be corrupting influences within us that are spread. Rumors and gossips and all those kinds of things that can destroy the church. And outside is not this, let's be blunt, this allure of the world. You know, the kind of Las Vegasness of the world. Do you understand? The bright lights and the, and the overt sinfulness. Because that works in the world. It's like, don't, don't get me wrong. There's a reason why casinos are packed out and churches are almost empty. Because because natural people are going to just throng to stuff like that. It is the fact that there are absolutely corrupt churches that do not preach the gospel, but instead preach false gospels. A multitude of false gospels. Now here's the deal. And I, I thought about this as I was praying over this this morning. I said, you know, every time I've, I've done, kind of done something like this, I've, I've been called to preach something like this, and I even said somebody's name like Joel Osteen, for instance. I say that name. Somebody will privately message, not, not you, it's you, some of the outside, privately message me and want to know how come, you know, one brother's attacking another brother. And I'm like... He's not my brother. He doesn't believe the same gospel I believe. He's making his own gospel up. Just because they claim Christian faith, it doesn't mean they are of us. At all. And that's a difficult thing to talk about because we have, we have made such a God of unity within the church and such a demon of divisiveness. The fact of the matter is God has intended us to split off from some people that are doing things wrong. To not walk lockstep with people who are leading their, their congregations to hell. To oppose that and to make sure people know it's wrong. There are people sitting in churches around here, folks, within 50 miles of our church, that are just as lost as that congregation out in Texas. And nobody's telling them it's wrong. And nobody's saying anything about it. And that is untenable with the gospel message. We're supposed to warn those who are perishing and not help them along. So this is vital that we talk about it today. This is important. And I tell you what, it's totally against our nature. But you know what? Our nature isn't the nature of truth anyway, is it? 
Christ has called His church to be bearers of His truth. The gospel. And these words are light and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We are intended by God as a church and individuals to be light bearers. Gospel bearers to the world. That's what He's called us to be. That's what He's called us to do. And by gum, that's what we will do. We will preach it and we will live it. And we will make sure everybody knows when it's true. And we will make sure they know when it's false. It is a rough cross to bear, but we will bear it. Doubt me not. Our church exists in the presence of enemies. And we must grapple with them. We must struggle against their evil plots. And we must strive to bring the true gospel to this world. One of these days... When we are gone, I want them to say of each and every one of us that we were warriors for the gospel. We may die broke. And we may die broken. But we will die as warriors. And not as cowards. Peter, 1 Peter 5.8 both warns the Christian and explains our standing in the world when he writes, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Those two things. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. We are serious about God's gospel. It's not a joke. We are serious about what the Bible says. What the Bible teaches within its context. And we are watchful. We are always looking for places to apply it. And for places in which we must defend it. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Currently, the devil still devours, doesn't he? How many people have we seen led almost to the threshold of grace, Brother Kyle, get devoured? Led off into some nonsense that's nothing more than nails in their coffin. The importance of this verse in conjunction with the focal passage is that the church cannot afford to relax its posture and iota. Nor can the church apathetically or naively continue to exist within a cocoon of perceived Protection. The church is the weirdest thing in the world. The world is on fire around us and we act as if we don't smell the smoke. As long as I don't perceive it within my house or see it at the end of my pew, everything's okay. As one friend said to me one time, long, long ago, said that, that there are leaders in churches, that are the kind of men, he said, who can sit in their house and not see through the windows. But we're going to see through the windows. Constant vigilance is the only way for the church to exist in a terroristic world that desires to intentionally corrupt the church with perverse sexuality and divisive dogma. And I said that because I was thinking of this one issue. And this is, I'm I'm not forcing this in. This is where I I, I believe I'm, I'm landing on it. And that was... I don't, don't have no desire to, to, to talk bad about this woman any more than absolutely have to. Um, back in 2009, Beth Moore wrote, what was the name of that book? I've never read it. Praying God's Word. I've only read excerpts. Praying God's Word. It's not really written for me, to be honest with you. Okay. Praying God's Word. In it, she absolutely affirmed the biblical standing on sexuality, and especially same-sex sexuality. Absolutely affirmed it. Ten years later, what does Beth Moore do? Takes it all back. Doesn't just take it back. Edits it out of her book. Because she talked to some moms. I've talked to a lot of moms too. 
I understand the absolute brokenness of it. But the response to sin is not to take back the truth. The response to sin is to preach the truth. It's to live the truth, to believe the truth. That's always the response to sin. No matter what the sin is, folks, by picking on one or the other, the response to sin is always the same. The gospel is God's response to sin. Do you know what happens when we disregard the truth? We always wind up in perversion. Beth Moore disregarded the truth and started preaching to men. It always leads to the embracing of perversion. What's at stake is the real gospel message that must be the theme of every church and a guiding light to the perishing. Christ explains in the parable of the sower in Mark 4.15 that these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. You know, unfortunately, our church has experienced countless times when, where believers were brought to the threshold of transformation, but the very words of life were snatched out of their minds and hearts by the machinations of evil. The way we put it when we privately mourn over these things in the pastor's office is, how many times have we baptized people and they ran out the door wet and we never saw them again? We brought them to the threshold. Satan snatched them away. Right there, on the cusp of freedom, the darkness returned to pervert their hearts further. Like that unfortunate person that Christ mentions in Luke 11, 25-26, who was once rid of, of, of demonic upset, of oppression, demonic influence, but because the Spirit of God doesn't indwell this person, because the demons move out and God doesn't move in, Right? Because light has no fellowship with darkness. Because now it's just an empty house and anyone can possess an empty house. Demons, they return. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last day of that person is worse than the first. See, along the way, we loved them and we swept the house clean. But because Christ does not indwell... All we've done is set the table for the demons to come in and feast. It's all we've done. The risk of those we meet and love is not imagined but substantive. Coming so close to the light but having their lives snatched away at the last minute by shallow, false, lying witnesses reduces these pitiful souls to a lifetime of darkness disguised as friendliness. See, the devils in this world, folks, the devils that... that, that, that uh, that lead churches that are false, that are churches of hell. On the outside, they're not that. On the outside, they're friendly and they're compassionate, they're accepting, they're loving, and they look like light. But they're black light. They're total darkness. To be caught in this darkness is not a fate worse than death, but a fate that leads to death. It's our job, folks. Pitiful as it may be, as much as it may separate us more, as much as it may make us less popular than we've ever been before, is to call that out. Let's call that out. The only way I can put it is, imagine your child was caught in that. What would you do? Imagine your loved one was caught in that. And you knew. 
that it was the primrose path that leads only to the condemnation of God, what would you do? You'd stand for what's right, wouldn't you? You'd die for what was right. Without a, without a thought. Look, the attack of the world today is no different than the assault on the church of Peter's time. According to the focal passage, the allure is the loud boasts of folly. That's what they do. For speaking loud boasts of folly. Combined with the attraction to sexual irresponsibility by the corrupt human heart. This isn't super complicated, folks. From the very, very beginning, the devil knew exactly how we are weak. We are weak in terms of physicality. We're weak in terms of attraction. We're weak in terms of loneliness. I've confronted that with my, with my graduating seniors a lot. In fact, I've said it in their faces. And I make sure they, they've got a way of getting in touch with me. I said, guys, you're going to get to college. You know what your enemy is? Loneliness. You've never been alone in your life. You think you have. You're going to get there sitting in a, in a dorm room in a strange city. And you're not going to know two people. And you're going to feel more alone than you've ever felt in your life. And the one said, you can even feel alone when you're surrounded by people. Yes, you can feel absolutely disconnected when you're surrounded by people. And loneliness is a path to darkness. You'll feel that. The way to corrupt the human heart. The Greek word that Peter uses is matayotes. Which means vanity, emptiness, unreality, purposelessness, ineffectiveness, instability, frailty, frailty, false religion. Um, I think the NASB translates this vanity, if I remember right. I don't remember whether the coffee does or doesn't. I'll just say this. It's the same word that Paul will use in Romans 8.20 when he relates that the creation has been subjected to futility. Futility is matayotes. What kind of words are these? Sure, they are... Loud boasts of folly. They are vain and arrogant boasts. But more than anything else, these are futile words. These are people who are led astray, who are, in, who are captured by futile words. Words that have no power. If there's anything that, divine, that, that defines the corrupt church of the world, the lost church masquerading as the church of Jesus Christ, is the fact that they preach futile words. They preach words that not only do not save eternally, they don't even help temporally. What do those words say? You can do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it. You can live any way you want to live. And God doesn't care about stuff like that. Those are futile words. They are lies. But they're the lies that everybody wants to hear, right? Whenever you were caught in bondage, born-again believers in this room, whenever you were caught in bondage, all you wanted to believe was that what you were doing was the right way. That's all you wanted to know. And this is what futile words do. The words of the false religion of Peter's day and ours that masquerade as, as saving and redeeming that fill churches and condemns those that pretend to save are boastful, vain, and futile. And these words only lead to shameful and perverse lives. Their work product is that people are, are more like they are more in bondage to sin. Because there's no confrontation. It's encouragement. Do what you want to do. Live the way you want to live. And God doesn't care. And it is a lie. It is a condemning lie. The ones that this false methodology and wicked preaching most affect are those who are barely escaping. These are victims. 
John MacArthur describes them beautifully when he says they're not saved people, but people who are vulnerable because they have high levels of guilt and anxieties. People with broken marriages, people who are lonely and tired of the consequences of sin and are looking for a new start, even for religion or help from God. The false teachers exploit this kind of people. They find these people who are so desperate for anything in the world and they tell them all these sweet lies and they'll believe them. You know why? Because they want to so desperately. I was there, and you were too, when you were believing these soft, tender lies. And then somebody preached the gospel to you, it felt insurmountable, didn't it? You know why? Because it is. It is absolutely insurmountable. But I don't have to overcome it. Christ has done all of that. I have nothing to do but but embrace that which is given to me through grace. Of course the God, the devil's going to tell you that the gospel is more than you can possibly accomplish because you could never accomplish it. Jesus had to accomplish it. Jesus did it. It is the house that he built. The suffering was his, the blood was his, the death was his, and the resurrection is his. He did all of this. For a lost and dying world that believed those soft flies, understand this much, those soft flies won't undo the fires of hell. But the gospel does. The gospel frees you from sin. And not more sin. More sin will never set you free. More sin will never satisfy you. Because your heart is insatiable for it. But the gospel will satisfy the heart of man. Satisfy the heart of woman. Understand, as a church, our hearts are tender toward the hurting and broken in this world, and our minds are willing to offer gospel sanctuary to anyone who's shattered by their experiences in this hostile world. We want broken people in this church. The more broken, the better. We don't hate you. We will love you with the gospel. But love is the gospel. Love is, this is God's truth for you, and it will save you, and it will change you. God's truth is a slave to no one. God's truth sets slaves free. However, the urgency of preaching this passage is that the differentiation between those who preach the gospel and those churches that offer no redemption at all but draw in countless numbers of the spiritually and emotionally crippled is that one is, is that one is defined by trajectory and the other by pace. The lost churches are defined by their pace. Come to us and you can be, you'll feel immediately better. Come to us and in, a, in an hour, Everything is different. We have a trajectory that points beyond the cross and beyond the grave to the throne of Jesus. They will make people feel momentarily better and eternally worse. The false church illuminates a dark path with lights and sounds of the world that blind the eyes and dull the senses of the hurting and the hungry. It is wild and it is loud and it is energetic. And in the midst of it, it's easy to just stop thinking, isn't it? 
They're absolutely right. For an hour or an hour and a half or however long it takes, guess what? All your problems seem to feel, feel like they fade to the background. And like any other drug, as soon as you're separated from the stimulus, they come right back. You know what the gospel will make you do? The real gospel makes you do? It makes you confront all that stuff, doesn't it? It doesn't give you an escape. It gives you an answer. The victims of this way of enticing men and women make them feel like things are changing rapidly. Literally overnight. These stories are Facebook and Instagram ready, aren't they? Because it's full of them. Because they take no time. They take no study or discipline to manifest. One day they're doing this and the next day they're preaching. And they don't know one verse of Scripture. But all of a sudden they are just radically because it's ready for the mass market. Paul explains this well in 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 when he writes, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. See, sound teaching requires endurance, doesn't it? Sound teaching changes you in days and weeks and months and years. Sound teaching isn't overnight. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. What suits the passions of men and women are experiences. Things we see and we feel and we touch more than the solid truth of the Bible. The only problem is that the experience. And these churches are defined more by experiences than ever by truth. These experiences must constantly, must continue and it must be constantly increasing. Myths like feathers falling from the sky and gold dust. Nonsense. In their weakness. Human beings want to change immediately and they are impatient with the process. Hey, I've talked to a lot of people in my life. I've had a lot of wonderful brothers and sisters in the faith who've come out of, of ways of doing things that are like this. And their, their, their journey is always marked by that same thing, Brother Kyle. Impatience. Impatience. 21-year-old guys who think they're supposed to be like 60-year-old Six-year-olds in the faith who've, who've been there, who've been saved for 40 years. Because the faith, the learned faith, isn't instantaneous. Your doubts and your fears don't go away overnight. Your hang-ups aren't crushed immediately. Some can be and some are, but they're not all. The bondage that you struggle with before salvation, you're going to surrender to Christ after salvation. That's the legitimate and real faith. On the other hand, we focus our hearts in ministry on 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 that says, All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. My greatest example I have is that Paul repeated himself in letter after letter and over and over again. Why? Because people have to learn to do better. Discipleship, Brother Mike, is learning to do better. Learning to be like Christ. Being taught the ways of the cross. And is it a struggle? Every day. You know you're on the right path because it's hard. If it was easy and you were skating along, I'd question the path I was on. For reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. At the extreme heart of the teaching of God in the Bible is Christ, the solid rock on which His church is built 
and the gates of hell threaten her not at all. In 1 Peter 2.4, he writes that Christ is the living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. In the same way, false leaders and their eager acolytes sought signs and wonders. The world rejects the living stone because, the on, because they only long for signs and not for truth. The world wants what? Miracles. Did Christ offer miracles? There is no doubt about that. He offered miracle after miracle after miracle. But the point of the miracles was the truth and not the other way around. Samuel proclaims in 1 Samuel 2.2, There's none like the Lord. There's none beside you. There's no rock like our God. Here's the truth. If you're caught in the worst tempest and the absolutely most terrifying maelstrom of, the, of your life, anyone who realizes this desperate situation would cling to the most substantial thing they can find. The heaviest object. Literally, they would find the heaviest rock and grab hold. As a church, we preach that the identity of this cosmically weighty and eternally foundational person is Christ Jesus, the God-man. He is the rock because when you anchor yourself to the rock, you are going nowhere. The winds can buffet you and the waves can crash upon you and you will not break free because the rock will never move. The rock that is Jesus Christ has declared Himself to be the Savior of the world and we can absolutely depend on that. We can build a church on that. We can build our families on that. And you can build your individual life on that one truth. That Jesus goes nowhere. That He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That your ways won't change Him and the lost world's ways won't change Him and the lost church can't change Him. He is who He is. As a church, we preach that identity. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, the world cannot suffer more cunning and craftiness from the propagators of lying religion and deceitful, scheming preaching. We oppose all that. Instead, Christ is the solid rock and He's the theme of our church. He's the theme of our preaching. Of these ministries and of these lives. We rest upon Christ the solid rock. And we will not be moved. Not some fancy and adorned. Not worship. Not loud and audacious. But the gentle and the quiet. The still small voice that brings peace to a life of violence. A life of war and a life of hatred. While everlastingly impactful, the message of the gospel is simple. Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scriptures. In accordance with the gospel that was preached from the very beginning of the Bible. Paul explains the nature and character of Christ in Colossians 1, 19-20. When he says, for in him all the fullness of God was, ple was pleased to dwell. You want to see God? Look to Jesus. And you don't have to look anywhere else. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Your peace that Jesus offers today was purchased on the cross when He shed His blood for your sins. Because we preach a bloody gospel because the only one that saves is one that's full of the blood of Jesus Christ. 
infinitely separated from the God who created you, sinners like ourselves are reconciled to God. Reunited to the one true God by the blood of Christ shed on Calvary. What you need to be restored to the Creator God has already been given on Calvary for you. He shed His blood and He gave His life so that you could be reunited. Believe today in Christ. Trust your sins to His blood. Abandon your righteousness and cling to the solid rock and you will weather this storm and see heaven in the end. That is the guarantee of the true gospel. The true gospel always saves. That is the gospel. And that's what we preach in this church. And that's what we believe. And I tell you this, we know that saves. We know it does. So believe that today and be made whole finally. Let's pray together.